This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Finding Your Positives, Your Personal Self-Help Plan for Overcoming Life's Toughest Challenges. And the author is Steve Ward, and Steve joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Hey, good afternoon. Great to have you with us. Uh, you've got a great message for us. Uh, you got a, a plan. So this is a self-help book, uh, a guidebook. We'll get into the details in a moment, but let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for our discussion. You say this, Finding Your Positives Goes Beyond Positive Thinking with a self-help guide to overcome life's toughest challenges. The plan consists of an introspective search to identify challenges, your positives, and how to use your positives, including worksheets to take action along with a plan to measure your progress to cope with life's challenges to the road of healing and recovery. That kind of says it all. It's very comprehensive and at the same time easy to read and easy to follow. And we'll talk about the three-day window and, and these, uh, these three exciting parts that go to finding your positive. But let's first find out about you, Steve. You've been down this road, this challenging road, even with cancer. Correct. Yeah, cancer... I diagnosed with cancer approximately a year and a half ago, went through treatment, uh, radiation treatment, both external and internal radiation. And But what was interesting is when I went through treatment, the staff at the cancer center and the doctors commented how positive I was. So you're the most positive patient we've had come through in a long time because every day I go for treatment, I'd be upbeat and happy because I realized that every day I go for treatment, I'm one day closer to winning and beating cancer. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. You could look at it entirely differently, like a lot of people do. Well, when it comes to a, one of life's toughest challenges, the uh, the individual has uh, either make a choice, a when they make a choice, subconscious or a conscious decision, to choose their challenge as either an ending or a beginning. I always like to choose mine as a new beginning. I don't like the what goes along with choosing as an ending. It's too negative. Right, right. Well, this book uh, comes from your experiences, and you and you uh, talk to people who are facing some of life's toughest challenges. Other people facing cancers, and uh, you you formulated this plan. Now, you know how did this come about, step by step? Well, it's interesting. Over the over the years, I had challenges, you know, such as uh, well, cancer and. Since writing the book, I recently had a heart attack and, and doing well with that. Uh, you know, death in a, death in, a fa in the family, uh, suicide of a close friend. Those are just to name a few. And over time, I developed this plan. How do I deal with these challenges? What can, what can I do to overcome these challenges, to manage them, and to recover? And I realized that that decision of an ending or a beginning, the beginning, I chose the beginning and realized that there needs to be a plan. I chose the beginning, now what do I do? And I talked to a lot of people over the years, and something kind of happened. People seemed to confide in me and trust me and share their challenges with me. And so I'd give out little bits and pieces, and they'd come back to me later and say, well, Steve, thank you so much. You were a big help. So I realized, well, maybe I'm onto something here. And so I developed further and further, but then I realized that positive thinking wasn't enough. There needed to be more. And the first, the most difficult step for people is, you know, recognize that's a challenge, you know, rather than just a nuisance, but a challenge. And then where do I begin? So you needed that first step. 
And the first step to help them choose a beginning was find your positives. And once you find your positives and how they affect, positively affect you, you can draw upon those to help you with, you know, manage that challenge. Give us some examples of what our positives are. Well, your positives, for example, might be your family. It might be a, a grandchild. It might be music. Uh, a, a positive might be uh, might might be might be prayer. It might be uh, art, drawing, painting. It might be a close friend confiding in a close friend. Uh, you know, it might even be just going out and, and grilling. You know, positives are very individual. And, but the thing is, once you find a positive, and to be a positive, it has to meet that criteria of how does it touch my heart? Does it touch my soul? And when it touches your heart and soul, you know you have a positive, something you can draw on, because it's your heart and soul that preserves, protects, and maintains your well-being. Well, there's a lot of books out there about positive thinking, uh, positive attitude. Uh, what sets yours apart? Well, finding your positives goes beyond positive thinking, whereas positive thinking is, is two things, positive thinking or positive attitude. The thing common with the most, those two themes is they do not require action. They're morally mere thought and really no accountability or measurability, whereas finding your positives gets you to write down your positives, why it's a positive, so now you understand why it's a positive, and you've already taken action to identify your positives. And then there's measurability and accountability in that there's a calendar in the book where you can take your, what I call your personal weather each day, and then you get a snapshot of your progress. And uh, you, these are part of the worksheets in your book. That's correct. That's correct. And for example, taking your personal weather. If uh, if today was not too good, it was a bad day for you. Color that, highlight that day in black. That was a stormy, stormy day. That was a tough day. If the next day is, say, a little better, not a lot, but a little better, and it's it's like a cloudy day, color that day in in a light gray. And then progressing up the line, for example, if you have a, uh, a day that's better than those two, this is a pretty good day. I'm feeling better. I've used my positives. That's a green day. And then if you have a day even better than that, this day, man, it, there's some meaning and purpose of this day. I feel good. My challenge is, you know, I'm not even thinking about it. That's a sunny day. That's a, that's a highlight, highlight that day yellow. And if you have the best day ever, just everything's going good, everything's good, that's a blue sky day. Highlight that day blue. And by those various colors, over time, you get this snapshot of how you're doing. And like the, the rule of 21, if you do something for 21 days, you create a habit. Well, it may take... The, the thing with your challenges, overcoming your challenges, there is no timetable because it's such an individual journey. You can't really set a timetable by individual. It's up to the individual and how much effort they put in and how serious they take finding your positives. And some challenges are so traumatic, so horrific, they may not be able to be overcome or require professional help. Explain the three-day window method. Ah, the three-day window method. That ties in with... Uh, a quote that that I that I did and that I came up with, and it's live today to illuminate the dawn of tomorrow. And how that ties in with the three-day window method, rather than look too far in the past or too far in the future, it helps people focus on the now. For example, if today is not a real good day for you, look back only to yesterday. What did you do yesterday that set the stage for today to not be such a good day? And keep in mind that what you, or if today is a good day, what did you do yesterday that started this day off to be a good day and continue to be a good day? And also what you do today 
sets the stage for the beginning of tomorrow. Very good. So by, by using those and living within those, within those three days, it becomes manageable. Now, why is thinking with your heart so important? Well, it's interesting. I do some speaking engagements, and a lot of people think, you know, think with your brain. Well, the thing with, with, with the brain, the brain relies on the heart. And the heart does not rely on the brain because the heart beats autonomic or independently of the brain. The brain doesn't send signals to the heart to pump blood or nourishment to the rest of the body. Now, the brain relies on the heart to pump blood to the brain, so the brain functions properly. So I think of, of, of thinking and, and making good decisions by thinking with your heart because, because your heart is, is the window to your soul and your well-being. And if you think with your heart, you're more likely to make good decisions to address your well-being, to overcome the challenge, rather than the brain, which the brain, with the brain, emotion can enter in, they can misfire, and that that's where clouded thought and clouded decisions enter. What is the importance of inspiration? Well, inspiration is, inspiration is interesting. I mentioned that to people, uh, you know, do we have the responsibility to inspire other people? And I, they'll say, yes, yes. And I say, no, no, we don't. It goes beyond that. Simply put, it's just the right thing to do. And the word inspire and inspiration can be overwhelming to some people. If you look in the dictionary, one of the meanings of inspiration or to inspire is to encourage. While we've all encouraged people throughout our life, be it our children, our parents, a friend, if you're a coach, players, we know how to encourage people. So if we break inspiration down to encouragement, it's much easier to understand and is not overwhelming. And when, when, we, when we encourage someone or inspire someone, we both win because the person we inspired wins because now they have something they can, you know, address and, and look to to move forward. And we win, if we know it or not, we might not even know it because they might not tell us that we inspired them, but we win because simply we just did the right thing. We shared our story, we shared some thought, we shared some encouragement. And why is giving thanks so important? Uh, giving, giving thanks is extremely important. Uh, too many times you don't appreciate all that we have. And recognize what you have and how beautiful things are. A good exercise is, is to, you know, on a summer day, lay out in the grass on your back. Look at the trees, how beautiful they are. Listen to the wind rustling through the trees and the leaves rustling. Look at the clouds. Look at the sky. Look at the flowers nearby. Maybe a squirrel, maybe a bird, maybe bees. But appreciate all those and appreciate all that you have. Appreciate family. Appreciate friends. Just appreciate one another because it's magnificent what we all have. Well, this book is very different. Uh, obviously, uh, has a lot more than just talking about positive thinking, positive attitude. And you say that there needed to be a way to address all the emotions surrounding a life challenge. And, and it's easy to understand a few simple steps and also a method to track one's progress, the way you measure this. So an invaluable book for someone who's trying to turn their life around. Steve, why don't you give us some closing thoughts? Well, it's interesting. There's, like we said, there's a lot of books out there in positive thinking, positive attitude, but there's also books that address self-help books that address just stress, anxiety, guilt, whatever it might be, just specific emotions. Well, this, finding your positives can address all those emotions, and usually you don't just have one emotion. You have, a, a, you know, a, multiple emotions at one time. And to help manage those, finding your positives is a plan that, given the effort and you open your heart, can be a road to success to beat, manage, and overcome your life's toughest challenges. We've been listening to Steve Ward. He is the author of his book, Finding Your Positives, Your Personal Self-Help Plan for Overcoming Life's Toughest Challenges. Steve, tell us how to get your book. 
you can get your you can purchase the book and site at iUniverse.com. Uh, other websites such as uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and there's other book sites as well on the internet. I'm, I'm not aware of all of them right now. Can't recall them all, but those are some of the sites where the book is readily available in both paperback and uh, e-format. Well, thank you, Steve, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Decisionology, A Guiding Compass for High School Students. And the author is Daniel P. Gates, and Dan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dan. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, very good. Uh, I want to read just a short paragraph about your book, just so everyone understands what we're talking about, and then we'll get into a little bit about you and then why you decided to do this. You say this, To my knowledge, this book is totally unique. It is written expressly for high school students, and it deals with the type of decisions high school students are faced with on a daily basis. There is no other book, to my knowledge, that exclusively addresses decision types being faced by high school students. So this guiding compass, as you call it, raises these kinds of questions and helps students think through their decisions. Now, Dan, what was the reason for this book? You say that you couldn't find anything like it, and but you had enough experiences to, to address this. Yes, Steve. Uh, essentially, uh, when I was in college, I had the – I won't say it was unique, but it seemed unique to me. I had the experience of working four part-time jobs which included um, uh, working for an attorney, a sociology professor, a zoology professor, and the owner of a car dealership. And it was through my exposure to these four bosses that I really realized, uh, you know, from the standpoint of interest, uh, that the decision-making process was crucial. And they all had their own unique styles in terms of how they made decisions. And I found that that was a critical aspect of succeeding in today's world. And from my standpoint, I, from there, I realized uh, once I got into the business world, I owned an insurance brokerage, I realized that, you know, a lot of the decisions which I was actually uh, seeing on a daily basis by many of my policyholders, by their young, uh, many, many times their young children, uh, were critically changing their lives. And I realized that 
if they had just made a better decision, their life would be completely different. So I basically knew by my mid-30s, Steve, that the, writing a book for high school students about decisions was something that I definitely wanted to do, but I, even at that time, I didn't feel that I had enough exposure to, to real-life situations. So it was about 30 years later that I felt pretty confident that I'd be able to write a book, uh, you know, Decisionology, obviously the title that I chose, uh, which would do justice uh, to exactly what we're talking about here, writing a book on decisions for high school students. And to my knowledge, there is no other book like it. Now, the primary market is more than just the high school student. Yes, uh, the primary market uh, would be, uh, from my standpoint, uh, t- uh, twofold, uh, possibly three, but uh, the, the parents as well, because the parents can use it as an interactive tool to, to communicate and create a dialogue with their children, and also educators. So we've got a large market out there, uh, people that I feel, uh, you know, we can make a difference. What do you think is the main thing you want the readers to learn from your book? Okay, uh, from the standpoint of the main thing that I think uh, the readers should take away from the book uh, is that it's absolutely essential that they create an awareness and a lasting impression in their minds that the quality of the decisions that they're making play a huge part in determining uh, you know, whether or not they enjoy a bright future. They absolutely never, ever, ever should forget that the consequences are the results of the decisions that they make and that good decisions translate into positive end results most of the time. Now, you call decision, decisionology very readable. Uh, they'll really identify with uh, many of the decision examples that, uh, that you have in the book. Uh, but you have some decision-making tools, such as smart students' decision tool. Why don't you talk about some of those tools that you have in the book? Okay, I'd be glad to. Uh, smart students' uh, decision tool, kind of a mouthful there, <laughs> basically is, uh, if you've ever heard of the, the old Ben Franklin clothes, it's, it's a sales tool, but essentially uh, it's a way of determining uh, yay or nay uh, on a given, in a given situation. And it's nothing other, it's very simplistic, but it's very, very effective. You literally uh, take a piece of paper, draw a line across the top, and then uh, tee it, uh, a line down the middle, and on well, the left side or the right side, usually the left side, you're going to write reasons for making that decision. And on the opposite side, you're going to write uh, down the reasons against making that decision. And when all is said and done, quite often the, the, the side of, of, the, of the T, which you've created there, the diagram, with the most reasons on it is going to be where you make your decision. But there are some obvious exceptions uh, because sometimes a, a given reason uh, for making a decision carries a lot more weight than than others, but uh, that's one example. Uh, the smart decision, smart students decision tool uh, I've used my entire life. Uh, when I'm faced with something, it helps me visualize what that decision is like, and quite often uh, it gets uh, making that decision it gets muddled with all the other variables, and you can't really uh, sometimes you know create the focus that you want. And this really helps you hone in your focus. And then there's the decision recess. Yes, decision recess, I feel, is probably one of the most important tools that I shared uh, uh, in the book. And uh, essentially, Steve, it boils down to when you get into an emotionally charged situation where your emotions are effectively taking over and making the decision for you, if you can, it's, it's critical if you can possibly... Uh, you know, gain enough control, self-control, if you will, to step back from that decision at that moment, take a half hour, take a day, take whatever the time frame is based upon the severity of the, of the decision you're facing, uh, and make sure that when you come back to that decision, you are calm to whatever degree you can be and collected, and you're not making a decision which is going to possibly wreck your life or the lives of others, uh, strictly based upon emotions. We know that the crime, uh, crimes in this country, in most countries, uh, I would assume uh, throughout the world, uh, are often created uh, during a, a time of extreme passion. And the emotions, many times these young people are encountering, if they just realize that, you know, you, if you can control that enough so that you can actually step back and review the situation 
and re review your options, you're going to make a much better decision and hopefully a, a life-changing decision in the positive. What's the final decision checklist? Final decision checklist, uh, Steve, is uh, all of the, there are 17 different uh, 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 items on the final decision checklist, which are uh, things that, uh, you know, when you're going to make a decision, you know, for example, have you considered safety? Okay. Is this a legal decision? Is this a decision that you're going to regret afterward, have remorse? Uh, is this a decision that you that, that should have discussed with somebody, uh, you know, who has more uh, knowledge or ability in that given area? Is this a decision that you should have possibly passed on to somebody else because you weren't confident to make the decision? Just a really exceptional list of, uh, you know, that, that the students can avail themselves of that is going to give them the opportunity to look at that decision before it's made and possibly make a better decision. And then there's the domino decision. Yes, the domino decision uh, is, you know, for example, uh, a very easy uh, uh, example to share with you is buying an older car. Uh, quite often the high school students, they, you know, they want that car, and uh, many times it's going to be an older car because they, they have an extremely limited budget and they may have been saving for years. But they have to realize that buying an older vehicle uh, is, is just the start. Uh, that, that that initial decision uh, is just the start of possibly a cascading number of decisions, you know, ranging from uh, the safety issues, the, the brakes, uh, uh, you know, having to have the car tuned up, having to put tires on it. In other words, the initial decision is like a domino that sets off a cascade of maybe four, five, six, ten different decisions, which many times can be very costly and more than you bargain for. And I can see the value of keeping this decision diary. Yes, the decision diary is a wonderful, wonderful way of uh, essentially you know, having the, the students, uh, you know, be able to view what they're doing with their decisions after the fact and also as a kind of a roadmap into, into their future. Uh, for example, uh, each time they make a decision, uh, hopefully probably the more important decisions are going to go in the diary, but just a simple uh, spiral notebook would be, you know, effective. And write down the decision at the time, write down your reasons for making the decision, uh, and after the fact, write down the consequences. And, you know, a year later, six months later, uh, whatever, uh, you know, if you kept this diary, uh, religiously, so to speak, you're going to have a real good picture of what you're doing right, maybe where you could have changed, maybe where you've had some challenges, and what you could do to rectify that. And then there's the real bottom line chapter, do-overs are rarely an option. You bet. That there is, I feel, uh, something that it, I, I tried in, in that particular chapter to address this uh, with as much intensity as I could without going over the top. But, you know, uh, when you make the, that decision, that uh, important decision that may affect the rest of your life, one thing you're going to have to stop and realize beforehand is many times you're not going to get an opportunity to ever, ever address that decision again. It's forever. And as a result, when these young people are facing uh, life-changing possible, possibly the types of decisions, they have got to be cognizant of the fact that those decisions may be never addressed, addressed again. A good example, the young, the young person we see on, on the television from time to time who's been incarcerated for life for committing a heinous crime of murder. Okay, there was a decision made there, and that decision, there is no do-over. Well, it's an interesting title, Decisionology, uh, because it's, it's, the, it's an ongoing process. Yes, very much so. You know, I, I feel it's, it's very important that we realize that, uh, you know, we are, we are, you know, as human beings, we have the ability to reason. We have the ability to make decisions, but we're not taught necessarily the ability to make decisions. Uh, you know, in any given course throughout all of our education. Uh, uh, from from my, my perspective, this is something that's going to give the young people a step up, if you will, and have them uh, use this as, as not, maybe just nothing other than a supplemental way of addressing the decisions that they face, you know, obviously from day one, but, you know, by the time they get to high school, 
agencies, they're in a position where mom and dad are no longer making that decision for them often. Mom and dad used to, you know, prior to that, maybe high school, they were creating option A or option B, which do you want? Now, when they're in high school, option A and option B, maybe option C, are things that the high school students have to address and make the decision themselves many times. And there's tools uh, in this book that will help them. What was the most challenging part of writing your book? Uh, oh, I would say uh, keeping, you know, obviously the book is designed to be, you know, uh, uh, excuse me, it, it carries an awful lot of decisions, uh, examples of decisions, if you will, and making sure that the decision examples that I chose were relevant to today's high school community. Uh, these kids, I feel, uh, for this to be meaningful, have to be able to identify with the decision examples which I chose and I racked my brain for months to get the right ones. Interesting review of your book by a sitting district court judge. Yes, uh, that was, uh, from my standpoint, uh, a critical part of you know, getting somebody who was, if you will, uh, an expert in the field of decisions who would be able to take uh, the book, look at it from the standpoint of you know, what he felt was, you know, uh, the world of decision because he, he, he encounters them on a daily basis and, and give me his you know, unbiased review. I did not uh, in any fashion prior to giving him the manuscript tell him you know, uh, A or B in terms of which, which way I wanted him to approach it. I just wanted him to review it uh, and he wrote the forward for it. He was, he was very impressed. But his words was he was very, very impressed. And the actual review that, that he uh, gave us, which uh, from my standpoint, I think uh, pretty much, pretty much says it all. Uh, you know, he said that, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting uh, now from the forward, he says, Dan Gates' book, Decisionology, should be mandatory reading for both parents and children. It emphasizes the consequences of decisions, and more important, it prepares students and parents for the decisions that are certainly coming and have to be met. And that's from the Honorable Ed McLean, sitting district court judge in Missoula, Montana. Any closing thoughts, Dan? Yes, uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of the book, there are a couple other things here uh, that I'd like to share. One is that uh, there's an interactive uh, question section uh, sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, it's called You Make the Call. And uh, basically, it's, it's just uh, where the parents and the, uh, the, the students uh, can, they can use these questions as tools, if you will, for a better understanding of the book in some of the various sections, but also to develop a dialogue between the parent and children. Uh, I feel that uh, this, this book can be used as a tool to many times connect between parent and child in maybe some very, very touchy, if you will, uh, areas that uh, these high school kids are encountering on a daily basis, and many times things that parents have a difficult time, uh, you know, uh, broaching the, the, the topic. The title of the book, Decisionology, A Guiding Compass for High School Students. We've been listening to the author, Daniel P. Gates. Dan, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you betcha, Steve. Uh, the book can be uh, uh, purchased uh, at many bookstores uh, shortly, uh, hopefully right away now that we've got, got the, the finished product, uh, Amazon.com. Uh, iUniverse, uh, you know, uh, Barnes, Barnes and Nobles, uh, and many, many other booksellers. And you also believe that there ought to be a course in high school on decision making. That's that's uh, absolutely correct. Uh, honestly, put uh, that was something that I evolved. Uh, I, I didn't realize until I had spent the time, the several months that it took me to write and uh, edit the book, that uh, you know, when all was said and done. Uh, the things that I shared in the book and that I, you know, uh, ultimately created for the book, uh, honestly, there's nothing in our schools that addresses this in the format that I, I presented it. And I believe that there should be a course or discussion groups or something which is literally going to uh, take into consideration the fact that these young people are facing decisions every single day and why not give them a head start or at least a leg up. Dan, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You bet, Steve. It's been my pleasure, and I wish you the best. 
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Heretic's Guide to Best Practices, The Reality of Managing Complex Problems in Organizations. And the authors, Paul Cumsey and Kailash Awati, and they join us all the way from Australia. Hello, Paul. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. Hello, Kailash. Hi, Steve. It's great to be here with you. Well, this is going to be a very uh, challenging theme here because you're challenging traditional thinking about problem solving in organizations, uh, which is always needed, obviously, to make things better. But first of all, let me read what you've written just to kind of set the stage for this discussion. This is what is what you've written. This is a book designed to shatter preconceived ideas about problem solving in organizations. Well, at the same time, teaches how to do it much better. It will make you laugh, likely challenge notions you hold dear, and definitely teach you something new. It will also provide brilliant ammo when dealing with a command and control project manager. Uh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> there are a few of those out there, aren't there? Uh, yes, there are, and I think... Um uh, some of us are probably somewhat reformed command and control uh, oh, okay. uh, project managers as well. So sometimes it takes one to know one. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Uh, my background is uh, essentially I'm an IT geek or I was an IT geek. Um, and I spent quite a long time um, immersing myself in the world of technical bits and pieces uh, across various technologies and had grossly inflated views of my self-importance in organizations <laughs> as, a, as, as a result. And so like all, all of those type of IT guys, my default, you probably know what my default answer to any question was, right? It was always no. It didn't really matter what the question was. Um, so um, I've been making amends for that for the last few years um, in terms of uh, uh, complex problem solving and the techniques that I ended up learning and uh, working with just proved their utility beyond IT and it just kind of grew from there. And so these days um, I, I work in quite a, a few different varied scenarios, all, all, all are usually complex complex issues with a lot of different stakeholders and different views and um, and yeah compl complex problems don't really know any bounds Kailash tell us about yourself yeah well um, I, I actually have a bit of an academic background I spent uh, 
way too many years in academia, uh, doing too many degrees and, uh, you know, doing research that uh, not too many people would read. Um, <laughs> and I made my escape from academia a little over a decade ago. And, uh, you know, I got a geek, I, I got a gig as a consultant, uh, which I think was the best move I ever made. And uh, from that, I drifted into IT and the current job I'm in now. And the one thing I found uh, in organizations uh, that was rather surprising was that the whole process by which decisions are made and decisions, I mean, important decisions, you know, decisions about investments, about the kinds of IT systems they would implement are made on rather flimsy grounds and are made in a somewhat arbitrary fashion. And this absolutely fascinated me for many years. And on the other hand, I also saw that many of the solutions that were implemented, uh, you know, as a consequence of these, of these decisions, um, tended to be, well, you know, off-the-shelf kind of uh, solutions uh, that go under this name of best practices. And it always fascinated me that uh, many of these uh, so-called best practices, in fact, didn't really work. And uh, I started writing about this about five, six years ago on my blog, and uh, then it happened that uh, it so happened one day that, you know, Paul stumbled on some of my stuff and then I started reading his stuff and uh, our conversation started from there and, uh, you know, which is what ended up in the book. And just for everyone's information, his academic background, Kalish, is he holds doctor, doctoral degrees in physics and chemical engineering. I think everybody needs to know that, Kailash. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. <laughs> that's impressive. I'm not sure about that, Steve, but thanks. <laughs> So your book uh, really becomes quite a controversy amongst the uh, business leaders of the world. It's interestingly, um, I think a lot of people when they read it, all we actually do is, reaff is affirm what they've instinctively felt anyway. So um, controversy may be in a sense of what is espoused as what you're supposed to do. Um, but a lot of people actually tend to tell us that actually makes quite a lot of sense to them. So um, um, perhaps uh, uh, according to the, the doctrine of best practice, uh, perhaps so, but according to the real life of just getting stuff done, um, it actually seems to resonate. Because there are practices, methodolo methodologies that are just used and because it's tradition, right? It's, it's just the way we do business. Oh, well, it's the easy way out, uh you know, and that's the thing. See, these are prepackaged solutions that are offered, and it's just so easy to, well, implement them. You know, it requires no thought or anything. You just do it because, hey, everyone else does it. But, you know, I think we really need to invest more time in understanding the problems that we're trying to solve before uh, applying solutions to them. And that's really one of the main themes in the book. Can you, each one of you give us an example so we can really focus in on this? Probably... Uh, for the uh, perhaps uh, IT listeners on the program, probably the best example is the um, the methodology that became or became known as waterfall, um, which is fairly standard in in project management for a good a good twenty odd years. Um, that particular methodology, actually, when you when you go back and uh, look at the history, it was in effect, in a nutshell, it was a misinterpretation of a paper that was written in 1970 um, that got legitimized because that misinterpretation was embedded into a standard that I believe was, the, I think it was the US military, and Kyla shall correct me if I'm wrong. In turn, what then happened was um, a few years later, uh, the British were looking for a standard for doing um, uh, project management, particularly for software projects. And they said, well, the Americans have this standard. They obviously know what they're doing, so let's go with that. And so... Like um, almost a game of uh, that, that children's game of whispers where each one whispers to the other, um, the original um, basis for the methodology uh, was lost, but it was legitimized by the fact that everyone saw everybody else doing it, and then I guess academia got in on the act, and it wormed its way into business. And so it's probably about the worst way you can uh, do uh, a software development project, but nevertheless, it's still fairly well entrenched in, um, in, in some organizations and it's actually still taught in um, a lot of uh, uh, computing and IT uh, courses. Would you like to add anything, Kalish? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just this, that um, you know, ideas tend to have a life of their own 
and very often uh, you have ideas that are very popular, but they're wrong. And uh, the thing is, it's very hard to actually remove these from you know the collective uh, memory of people because uh, they're so well entrenched. And uh, you know, like this thing that Paul, this uh, example that Paul just mentioned about uh, this particular standard of waterfall, it came from a Department of Defense um, standard. And because it was a Department of Defense standard, people just assumed it was right. And now only 20 years after the fact have people actually gone back and looked at it. And that wasn't us, by the way. It was actually done by a bunch of people in the um, early 2000s. And uh, they went in there and said, hey, you know, actually, the guy who wrote the original paper, Winston Royce, didn't advocate the method at all. If you had read the paper to the end, you'd find that he actually questions it. But the people who used or who, who actually defined the standard didn't bother reading the paper all the way to the end, it seems. So, uh, yeah, it just, it just then became standard practice. And I guess that's one of the messages is that don't believe in what authority says because authority may well be wrong. You ask a question in, your, uh, in explaining your book. You say, what does Borg the board from Star Trek have to do with problem solving in organizations. That obviously grabs my attention. So tell us about the board from Star Trek and problem solving. Uh, that was, um, so now you, you know, as you've just, you previously introduced, Kailash has two PhDs. I don't. And so guess who wrote the Borg bit? Um, the idea of the Borg was, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, when you think about the Borg, uh, from Star Trek, if if you're uh, um, a bit of a Trekkie, oh, yes. the Borg have a, uh, the Borg have the hive mind. They all share the collective mind, and so it basically means that every Borg drone has a complete shared understanding of a problem that the rest of the Borg has. So it's actually when you think about the Borg, they, they're quite efficient. Um, it might be a little bit painful to get assimilated and life might be boring if you're a Borg drone, but there's, there's a few intrinsic advantages. So, for example, if, you, if one Borg drone did decide to study a certification, um, uh, say a project management certification, then instantly all of the rest of the Borg is, is uh, certified. And so that, that's a huge saving in certification costs and um, as well as that. On a more practical level, if, 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 a, if a Borg drone finds out uh, an issue that's important or material to whatever they're working on, everybody else instantly knows about it. So that was uh, the joke there was, um, in, in one sense, um, the Borg are kind of the perfect, uh, uh, the perfect um, uh, audience for, um, for some of these methodologies because they have complete transparency in, uh, in how they communicate with each other. Um, but I guess uh, the thing is there, you're sort of taking the humanity out of, uh, uh, out of the scenario. And of course, <laughs> uh, most, as uh, I think Kailash alluded to earlier, <laughs> most decisions are not necessarily made on uh, logic alone. A lot of them are skewed by whatever someone's sense of uh, uh, well-being is. Yeah, and I think, uh, uh, sorry, just, just, just to add to that, um, you know, we, we, we talk of this notion of, uh, you know, rational dialogue in the book. It's actually central to the book. Okay? And the Borg was an illustration of that, is that the Borg are perfect, uh, can, can engage in perfect rational dialogue because they instantly understand what the other uh, drone is talking about. You know, everyone understands what each other is talking about uh, at a very deep level. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if everyone in an organization or everyone working on a project had that level of understanding of what each other were talking about? It would be brilliant because you wouldn't really have to explain too much. So the question is, how can we, who are working on projects or any other initiatives, get to a level of understanding that even closely approximates that of a bog. And the thing is that it's possible to do that using a bunch of techniques uh, that we talk about in the book. Okay, that, I mean, that's the whole point. The point is, how do we get to a point where we can understand each other through dialogue? We've only got and, enough... Uh, uh, Kailash, I'm sorry. We've only got enough time maybe to answer one more question, and I don't know which one of these you'd like to tackle, but, you, you know, there's the wicked problem and why it's important. There is sense-making, and, and then there's something called a holding environment. Uh, what would you like to do? Uh, I think probably the holding environment is, is not a bad place to start. Okay. Um, basically... The, the essence of a holding environment is um, 
if you've ever worked on a really messed up or bizarre project or you're in an organization where uh, you know things are on a knife edge or there's a blame culture, it's not a particularly conducive environment to um, co meaningful collaborative work. Uh, people are covering their butts or positioning themselves to avoid blame and communication channels aren't there. Um, the idea of a holding environment is how can you create the conditions for um, what Kailash termed uh, more rational dialogue, uh, which means it's open, transparent, free of power games, that sort of thing. And so we, we uh, use the term holding environment because the idea of uh, that, and, and I'll, Kailash will jump in and um, give you some more detail, but it provides the, the safety and structure that people need to be able to work uh, in that way. So basically it's an environment that gives you A, participation safety, um, and B, decision influence. And if you can create those conditions, um, suddenly um, a lot of those methodologies that actually sometimes can be quite difficult actually can start to work a bit better because um, they're working now in a con an environment much more conducive to, um, uh, to them working well. And, and yeah, just to elaborate on what Paul said, uh, the, what's the point of a holding environment? Well, it's actually to get to an understanding of the problem. Uh, you know, our, really our main contention is that people jump to solutions of problems without actually understanding the problem itself. So why is rational dialogue important? Well, it's important because it helps to get the entire group of stakeholders. You know, these, we were talking about people who sign the checks, people who do the work and people who are actually affected by the project. They all have vastly different perceptions often of what a project's about. So you need to get all these people on the same page. And how do you do that? Well, we say we do that through rational dialogue within a holding environment. And really, that's what the book talks about is what's, how do you create a holding environment and then achieve rational dialogue? So that's how it all sort of fits together. Yeah, we can't take the human nature out of any kind of right situation. And so that's probably the greatest challenge. That's why probably the Borg uh, example, it, it's a great example, but we're not Borg, or, or are we? <laughs> well, uh, the, projects, the projects would get done, and if anyone disagreed, you'd get assimilated. There you so, go, um, yes, yes, or, or but, uh, eliminated one or the other. Right? Yeah, but as I said before, life, life's pretty boring if you're a, a Borg drone. That's so, right. Um, and so you're absolutely right. You can't take the humanity out of it. And in fact, the mindless adoption of a lot of these practices attempts to do that. Ah. They seem to uh, um, have, have this misguided notion that uh, you, you can get people to um, force a shared understanding by following the yellow brick road of whatever the, a particular practice tells you to do. Um, but reality, the reality is that's just uh, uh, not the case. We've been listening to authors Paul Comsey and Kailash Awati, their book, The Heretic's Guide to Best Practices, The Reality of Managing Complex Problems in Organizations. Paul, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can get it from all good bookstores and, and presumably all bad ones too. Um, <laughs> Amazon, uh, Amazon uh, you can get the Kindle version. Um, and uh, but pretty much uh, you should be able to get it through most most outlets. Well, a couple great reviewers. Uh, one said this book hugely enjoyable, deeply reflective, and intensely practical. Another one, this is a terrific piece of work, important, insightful, and very entertaining. Well, I can we can sense your humor in taking a look at this serious problem, and that's needed too. So thank you, gentlemen, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Kyle Ash, thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 